The following is a text exchange which occurred between brothers on February 5th, 2022. 12.55 p.m. Since we like to talk about the important history of pants, have you ever heard of the rite of passage known as breaching? Was that when a kid got his first pair of pantaloons? Yeah, I've always known that little fellows were wearing dresses and such, but I had never heard of the breaching ceremony. Getting your trousers was a big deal. Seems like it served as the proper beginning of the training process to become a man. And if you went around in your new britches to show the neighbors, it was customary for them to give you money. Money for pets! Kind of a less frightening and less inspired version of Halloween. I suppose. It's fun seeing people like FDR and Tsar Nicholas II in their dresses. I don't flinch when I see a guy in a dress these days. I'm totally on board with people wearing whatever they want. But it's still kind of a shock to the system to see those fellas, even though it was totally normal back then. Yeah, not nightshirts. Like actual dresses. Straight from the heartland. This is Things I Text My Brother. Hey folks, and welcome back to another episode of Things I Text My Brother, a series of conversations which have taken place between the Brothers Drew Yard on subjects spanning the neighborhood and the globe, which will hopefully leave you smarter, kinder, and better looking. Today we're going to jump off from that dramatic reading that you just heard and discuss the topics therein. Maybe we'll talk about the important history of pants. Maybe we'll talk about britching. Maybe we'll talk about pantalone. But we haven't plotted an exact course because we want you to join us on that journey. I'm Jeff. This is Brad. Let's talk about our texts. But before we take on that text that you just heard one leg at a time, we need to take a look back because it's always important to make time to cleanse ourselves of our past sins and to continue our boundless quest for self-improvement through worthless information. Thus it's time for ablutions and edification. Well, Brother Brad, today we're going to do one of each. Why don't you start us off with your ablution? Today I have a new type of ablution, I think. Ooh, exciting. An ablution in absentia. What? I'm going to make an ablution for someone else. Let's do it. In episode 19, we talked a great deal about candy. Love it. Yeah, as you know, that being a thing which both you and I probably can claim enough hours of enjoying, studying, and thinking about to be considered experts. Absolutely. Malcolm Gladwell tells me that 10,000 hours makes me an expert. I believe I've spent at least 10,000 hours. We've gone platinum. Yeah, at least. So all this is to say that I recently learned that the Kansas City Royals Major League Baseball team has been serving a barbecue pulled pork sandwich that also has peanut butter cup pieces in it. I like pulled pork. I'll eat a peanut butter cup if there's no better candy available, but the combination is unnecessary, and I feel like it rises to the level of an ablution and absentia for the Royals. <laughs> so, my understanding is they're serving ice cream with peanut butter cups in, correct? You did say ice cream with peanut butter cups. No, I said barbecue pulled pork sandwiches with Whoa! peanut butter cups in them. Yes. I thought I just misheard you, because that's insane. Yes, I'll have a Ben & Jerry's with some peanut butter cups in it. Yeah. Well, that's as big a mistake as George Brett trying to act like he didn't have pine tar on his back. That's right. So there you go. A new type of ablution and ablution for someone else. Well deserved. Well, I have a bit of edification. This one goes back to episode 36, which was about Johnny Bright and the gridiron assault of an African-American legend. 
In that podcast, do you recall mentioning Fritz Pollard? I do remember mentioning Fritz Pollard. Do you recall why you mentioned him and what he had done? Uh, He was a coach and did other things around football. Yeah. He was the first African-American head coach in National Football League history here in the United States. That was in 1921 for a team known as the Akron Pros, which no longer exists. But back there in the early days, we had many teams in the early NFL. So my question for you, since we talked about the first African-American NFL head coach, I wondered who was the second African-American head coach in the NFL? Do you know the answer to that? I, I'm also interested in when, if that was 1921, you said, for yeah. Fritz Pollard. How long was it until we had another one? I have both answers. Given that the first one was in 1921 when Fritz Pollard became the head coach, you figure it was probably not too long after that. And so 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 1989. Art Shell. Art Schell was the second African-American coach, certainly the first of the modern era, because the NFL was a very different league back then, and its history is divided. I would not have guessed Art Schell, but when you said 1989, it had to be. Yeah. Took over mid-season for the then Los Angeles Raiders. Ended up staying with the organization for six years as head coach then. Another year, he came back in the 2000s, so about seven seasons overall. Ended up with just over a 500 record. And historically, at this point, only about 5% of NFL head coaches have been African-American. Now, there have been increasing amounts of African-American coaches, both at the head coach level and at the assistant coach level, but it's still not representative, especially in a sport in which so many of the players are African-American. And the Rooney Rule has attempted to expand minority hiring in the NFL, but that system has been a bit flawed. So it's just interesting, though, that it took from 1921 till 1989. I wasn't surprised, but that was a big wow. Not a happy bit of edification today, but it's certainly worth knowing. We've made some progress. Hopefully, we keep making more. That's right. Well, now that we've performed an ablution on behalf of the Kansas City Royals and a bit of edification, it's time to go back to today's text. And before we do so, it's worth acknowledging that both the term breaches and britches are probably going to be said by us the same for the ceremony known as breaching or bridging. We did look it up. Both are apparently appropriate. I know we're going to switch back and forth. So just assume that we're talking about the same thing every time. And with that, I'm going to kick it off to you to get us started. Those were not like nightgowns. Those were not like, I don't know, like kilts. Those were full on dresses that those boys were wearing in the paintings and images and things. So I think that needs to be said. Yeah, some with frilliness on and everything. Yeah, so I mean, people now often make a big deal about when a store like Target says they're going to stop labeling clothes as boys or girls clothes and just put out clothes and let people decide whether they're boys or girls clothes on their own. Yeah. We don't really have to go back too far to when boys and girls really did dress alike and dresses no less. <laughs> it's it's kind of a shock to the system to see them doing it, even though, like I said in the original text, and, and basically you're saying now, I don't think too much about it these days. If you see a, a boy in a dress, cool. That's where we're headed. No problem. Same. I mean, I suppose it made sense at the time, you know, to keep your clothes clean, maximize handing down clothes. I mean, the cost of clothing was a big deal back then, right? So Yeah, that was definitely something I was looking into. It's just like, what were the benefits of everybody wearing this? and um, just for the benefit of the listeners, cost is a big thing. You know, the the royals were doing this, but so were the average families. And to have a dress 
or a gown or a coat or whatever you would call these garments and to be able to alter them and just hand them down. It's a lot easier to do that than with a pair of pants. Right. I looked it up, too, because I, I remember seeing a picture of Louis the Fourteenth and his breeches and finery, along with his brother, Philippe, the Duke of Orange, still wearing his nursery dress. I remember seeing that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just the poor people. It wasn't just a fact of money. It was a thing. So it yeah. probably makes sense. It's easier to keep clean, easier to hand down, move them around, whatever, get kids in and out, just throwing a dress on made some sense. But I was interested in going down that path a little bit on the cost of clothing at the time and why they might have done that and passed down yeah. the clothes. And most people had just one set of clothes and it kind of was a part of your personality, you know, like the man in the yellow hat, right? <laughs> That's who you were because that was the only outfit you really had and you wore it. If you suddenly changed your outfit without people knowing you had come into a bunch of money, they start to suspect that something wasn't right, like you were stealing or you were part of a crime syndicate. They turned their neighbors in if they saw them in a new piece of really? clothing. Yeah, there's a in 1636. I was reading about this in 1636. Joan Burrs, B-U-R-S, Joan Burrs, murdered her mistress. So she was a maidservant, but she murdered her, her mistress by poisoning her a little bit for a long time mm -hmm. until she finally died in order to steal her clothes. <laughs> Because you could sell them for a lot of money. So like the main character in Daniel Defoe's novel, Mall Flanders, which yeah. was published in the 1720s, that's what she was doing. Stealing cloth, stealing clothes, reselling yeah. them. Yeah, that was the whole basis. Interesting. One of the research papers I read said that the most common theft to be prosecuted in 17th century England was the theft of clothing or cloth. And you were almost always hanged for the crime. That's very interesting. I never knew that. Yeah. It also makes me wonder, though, if I was the man in the yellow hat, that was my item of clothing. Yeah. And I switched my daily outfit from that to maybe one of the outfits that Guar performs in. Yeah. That would be suspicious to people. You know, Guar was the first concert I ever saw. In you person. love Guar. You should join the band. I'm not interested in Guar. But okay. I went to this concert because somebody had a ticket and took me along and it was frightening to me. Mm. But yeah, your your whole personality would have changed now because now you're not the man in the yellow hat. You're the man in the devil mask or whatever masks they wore, the War. road warrior outfit. Yeah. I wondered a little bit about how common this was and if there was any writing about it and what people thought about the ceremony and how big a deal it was. Was yeah. it like a communion thing? Like it was a big deal. Yeah. And I came across a quote from a letter that was written by the poet Samuel Coleridge from 1801 about the excitement of the breaching ceremony. Yeah. And it said, Hartley was breached last Sunday and looks far better than in his petticoats. Ooh. He ran to and fro in a sort of dance to the jingle of the load of money that had been put in his breeches pockets. Ooh. But he did not roll and tumble over and over in his old joyous way. No. It was an eager and solemn gladness, as if he felt to be an awful era in his life. Oh, bless him, bless him, bless him. So he was happy he is now in his pants, and he ran around in all of his money. That goes back to the original text. We, or I compared it a little bit to Halloween, when people are right. giving you money for showing off your pants. So it appears that Samuel Coleridge is adding support to that story. huh? And again, I suppose that makes sense. If clothing was so expensive, a lot of these families wouldn't have had the money to pay for a pair of breeches necessarily out of their own pockets and budgets. So if they went to the neighbors and collected a little bit of coin, it might help pay for their first pair of breeches. 
Yeah. And I was reading on janeaustin.co.uk, which I also saw that same quote. That is where I go to get all of my information. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if our listeners know, but most of our podcasts are researched exclusively on janeaustin.co.uk, which is why some (laughs) of the podcasts have been so unusual. But I I liked the... uh, I like the summary of the ceremony that was given on that website, so let me just read that. The breaching event provided a cause for private celebration to which family and friends were invited. For the parents, this ceremony also acknowledged that their child had survived past infancy, so another reason to celebrate this. Right on. In an age when so many children died before reaching their majority, almost a fourth of them would die before the age of 10, the breaching ceremony might well have been the only significant event in a young boy's life. In addition, he received a brand new set of clothes, a milestone indeed. It was a big deal. I was trying to think. We have so many different rite of passage ceremonies with the sweet 16s and the quinceaneras, the bar mitzvahs. But I think my favorite of all of those traditional ones has definitely have to be the donning of the pants or the britching ceremony, as it's more commonly referred. I also saw lots of references to skeleton suits. Did you see the references to skeleton suits? I did because they were, of course, mentioned on janeaustin.co.uk as well. And I had to look up what a skeleton suit is. Do you know what a skeleton suit is now? I do, but I'm interested to hear what you think it is. Well, I'm just pulling it right from that website. A boy suit worn from 1790 to 1830 consisting of a short, tight jacket and ankle-length trousers buttoned to the jacket at the waist. Skeleton suits sound cool unless you have to take a dump. Or they sound like early versions of bodysuits, and pretty much no one should wear a form-fitting bodysuit. I don't understand. But what would superheroes wear if there were no bodysuits? Do they wear bodysuits? Seems like it. What what would you call what Spider-Man wears? I don't know what I would call that. Well, then what would you call what Harry Styles wears? I wouldn't know, but my daughter would. Harry Styles is a delight. And he often, by the way... Although he's seen in pants, he is often wearing clothing that blends the line between the traditional female clothing and male clothing. Maybe. I'm certain you'll be surprised knowing a lot of pop culture and who's wearing what is not high on my list of things I pay attention to. Ah, well, I was reading that the skeleton suit was kind of a bridge outfit when some of the young folks stopped wearing their gowns or dresses or whatever we would call them. But they weren't ready for the full-time adult clothes. The skeleton suit kind of bridged the gap. And again, according to the Jane Austen website, it was talking about how the type of clothing that the boys would wear after their britching ceremony depended on the century. So during the 17th century, it said that children's clothes looked like miniature versions of adults. So young boys would be wearing their waistcoats, their shirts, breeches, stockings, and other leather shoes. But then later on, it was that skeleton suit to bridge the gap. But oftentimes during these periods, it's worth pointing out that for the people who didn't have money, they were switching from their unbritched clothes, which is another phrase that's used quite often before you had your breaching ceremony is that you are unbreached or unbritched. They would switch straight to whatever the clothing of their trade was. Because remember, for many of these young boys, even if it occurred at the age of like seven years old, this becoming a man also meant going to work, whether that was putting on your farming gear or going to some kind of industrial labor, or whatever the case may be, you were switching to adults' clothes, and you were starting to bear that responsibility. I was reading a little bit of an essay written by Anne Lombar called Making Manhood, Growing Up Male in Colonial New England. Basically, getting the breaches gave boys more freedom of movement and exercise, let them go explore their world, go to work, do those things, while dresses made it so girls were more confined to housebound activities by the nature of the clothing they wore. Hmm. 
I'm going to assume that you also spent some time looking up other coming-of-age rituals around the world since we are related <laughs> and our research tends to be exhaustive. Yeah, a natural place to jump from this is how are other people celebrating that passage of time, which with the bridging ceremony, it happened at a wide variety of ages, from age two to age eight or anywhere in between. Six or seven seemed very common, and you know, modern rites of passage happen at all different times, but I definitely looked into it a little bit. Yeah. It's always interested me what different communities find important, not even just in coming of age rituals, but that's a good sign of it. And I've always enjoyed learning about different cultures and what they find interesting, exciting, valuable, like jumping from a high tower with only a vine to protect you called land diving in Vanuatu, wearing mm -hmm. gloves made of ants in Brazil, having mm -hmm. to live in the Australian outback alone for like six months and, yes. and other things. Yeah, having yeah. vision quests, all these vision things. Vision quests. Basically, if I had to demonstrate my manliness by going through the Mandan Okipa ceremony, where they hung you from hooks from your skin in the middle of your lodge, and you had to not show any sign. Yeah, I'd rather not. There's really no reason to believe I would have ever become a man in those tribes. No. That said, I think I may have survived a breaching ceremony. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know our parents had us in leisure suits pretty early. Ah, <laughs> leisure suits. That's right. I have a velour <laughs> leisure suit at Cedar Point theme park. I was wearing that in the yeah. middle of summer. Nice. Well, as I looked into the various rites of passage, I discovered that a lot of the ones that are listed in articles, things are scary, are dangerous, and I didn't want to dwell there too long. No. But there was one, and it's one that you actually mentioned that I was intrigued by and did look a little bit more into. You had mentioned wearing gloves full of ants. Now, this ceremony actually really intrigued me. It's done by a group of people in the Amazon known as the Sateri Mawe people. And these are not normal ants, Brad. These are bullet ants, which I had never heard of. I hadn't heard of them either. No, but the name apparently refers to how much pain that these ants cause, which most sources seem to indicate is 30 times more painful from a sting from other insects. The ceremony is bonkers. When the boys in this group are coming of age, a lot of times as young as 12 years old, the other people in the tribe, they go out into the Amazon forest. They get these bullet ants, which are like three centimeters long. They bring them back. They have to knock them out. And then they put them in some gloves so that when they come to, they wake up. And these boys are wearing these gloves that are filled with these incredibly painful ants. I think I saw as many as 120 of these ants. Ugh. And so these boys put these ant gloves on and they have to wear them for 10 minutes and they have to dance around in part to take their mind off of what's happening in part to keep their blood flowing because crazy things are happening in their body. Their hands are becoming paralyzed. They're experiencing more pain than I'll ever experience. And they're just having to dance around while they do it. And they don't just do this ceremony one time to become a man. This 10 minute ant dance has to occur 20 different times. Yes. And the ceremony, according to the chief, is meant to show the men that life lived without suffering anything or without any kind of effort isn't worth living at all. And so they end up with their hands being paralyzed for some amount of time and pain that's excruciating for about 24 hours. And they have to do this 20 different times. I'm not sure what the coming of age ceremony was for me. May I'm still waiting on it, but it definitely wasn't ant gloves. And I am very happy about that. Yeah, for sure. I got stung by a wasp just above my knee last week, and I swelled up from the top of my knee down through my ankle, and it's still <laughs> itchy a week later. And that was one sting from one wasp, which was certainly not the type of pain that they're having from even one sting of the bullet ant. 
Yeah, I'm assuming I could die from it. I got stung by bees my whole life, no problem. I think I was stung by wasps growing up, but one sting from some kind of hornet in New York sent me to the hospital unable to breathe like an hour after it happened. So I don't know if they're in any way related, but I seem to be a person who can't handle stings. So these ants would probably kill me. Yeah, I'm sure I wouldn't survive it either. The other thing that really caught my interest when looking into the subject was... I think it was in the episode about Boney M and Imperial Russia's Greatest Love Machine that we talked about the important history of pants. The important history of pants. And all this just got me thinking, even though we've addressed the subject before of hammer pants and all these different things, we haven't really talked about the word itself. Pants. Now, we're both aware that here in the United States of America, and in Great Britain, we speak two different kinds of English, and that pants is a much funnier word in England than it is over here. In the United States, the word pants is the most common term for clothing that covers the body from the waist to the ankle, give or take, with a separate part for each leg. That's according to MarianWebster.com. Okay. But we know that in England, it means underwear, underpants, those types of garments. But I was wondering, where does all this come from? Why did we start referring to them as pants to start with? How did our country go one way with it and England go another? Do you know the answer to any of that, brother? I assume that the word for pants came from other languages. It did. And in fact, I've seen sources both within this Merriam-Webster article and from a website called Lingoblog and a writer named Marcel Iselli. They both refer back to Italian theater and actually a bit of French as well. So pants comes from pantaloon. Pantaloon comes from either a character named Pantalone or Pantalon, depending on whether we're talking about Italian or French. So let me read to you from the Merriam-Webster article. They say that the word comes from the name of a stock figure in the Commedia dell'arte, a form of Italian comic theater popular throughout Europe from the 16th to mid-18th century. Pantalone, as he was called, was a greedy, lecherous, scheming old man who often ended up being duped and humiliated. His costume consisted of a soft brimless hat, a pleated black cassock, slippers, and a vest, breeches, and stockings that were conspicuously red and tight-fitting. In later representations of the character, the breeches and stockings were replaced by long trousers. The Linguablog writer adds that the French word actually refers to a stock character named Pantaloon, essentially a clown-like buffoon who wore a pair of tight pants as a part of his costume. He says that the Italian pantalone was not quite as much of a clown, but either way, seems like we're talking about the same character here. And then, according to that Merriam-Webster article, when trousers of a similar style became popular during the Restoration in England, they became known as pantaloons because of these characters. And then the Americans just shortened the term. But then, this is where it took a twist I didn't know. In a 1909 book called Write It Right by Ambrose Bierce, he said that Pants was the abbreviated form of pantaloons, which are no longer worn. And he said it was exceedingly vulgar to say pants. Huh. So, Brad, you've said pants like 10 times in this episode. I've probably said it 20. Why are we being so vulgar on this episode? What are we supposed to say, according to Ambrose Pierce? I don't know. If it's not pants, are we supposed to say breeches? Yeah, I don't know. This was maybe my favorite part of it. And I think I had heard this somewhere, but I'm not really sure. In the 1990s, British English speakers have also used pants informally to mean nonsense, and they quote the sentence, It's ridiculous. The whole thing is pants. I don't think that phrase is being used much anymore. Maybe it's being used a little bit. I don't know. 
But I love that saying, and I think I need to say that all the time now. That's pants, Brad. This whole thing is pants. I've heard people say that someone was pantsed to mean that they had their pants pulled down without their consent as a prank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always wondered about that because I know that is a phrase people use. I always thought of it as being de-pantsed. Right, right. But so you can be pantsed or de-pantsed and both of them are taking pants off. So what happens if somebody runs up to you and throws a pair of pants on you? What is that called? I think you also would be pantsed. Yes, but not de-pants. But not de-pants. You could be re-pants. Re-pants. Pants, de-pants, and re-pants. Yeah. That should be a segment on the podcast, but I'm not sure what it would be about. Tangentially related to this topic, since I mentioned the poet Samuel Coleridge, I looked him up because, believe it or not, I am not what one would refer to as super knowledgeable about 18th and 19th century British poets. Romantic poets. Is he a romantic poet? I just read that he was involved in the Romantic movement. I have no idea what that is, but that was a very romantic... That passage you read was definitely very romantic on the subject of his son getting his money-jingling pants. You now are more knowledgeable about Samuel Coleridge than I was, or more (laughs) knowledgeable about 18th and 19th century British poets. But I like the fact that he attended Jesus College, which is part of the University of Cambridge. I knew that Charles Darwin had attended Christ College, which itself was founded as God's house, not Christ's church. God's property? GP, are you with me? GH, are you with me? And I certainly had heard of King's College, Queen's College, Trinity College, all as part of the Cambridge University collection of colleges. But I didn't know they had a Jesus College, which is named after the chapel on the campus, which is Jesus Chapel. But the full name of Jesus College is... The College of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. John the Evangelist, and the Glorious Virgin St. Radigan, near Cambridge. Radigan? Radigan. Mm. Yeah. But anyway, I would call it Jesus College, too, because that's too long a name. I would call it Radigan. Radigan. So what was this Radigan the patron saint of? Do you know? I didn't take any time to look it up. Uh, The reason I ask is because I've been writing this book for like two decades now, which means I barely write it at all. And it's all about Visigoths and dust and saints. And I didn't know much about saints, but I got into it. And I especially started to enjoy finding out what a person was the patron saint of. And I was in this little French town called Pibroc, where I got chased by a dog and slept under a tree. And I was learning all about the saint called Germaine Cousin, who's not famous by any means, but she's the patron saint for a bunch of things. She's the patron saint of abandoned people, victims of abuse, disabled people, Even girls from rural areas have their own saint. Illness and impoverishment, people who are orphans, shepherdesses, sick people, unkind people. But my favorite thing that she was the patron saint of, physical therapist. Did you know that physical therapists have their own saint to operate on their behalf, Brad? No. Were there physical therapists as a career option around? I have no idea. All I know about her is that she slept under a staircase, Harry Potter style. She parted rivers like Moses, and she was treated very badly by her father, who may not have actually been her father. Let me ask you, Brad, if a person was looking at your legacy and trying to determine who you would best represent, what would you be the patron saint of? I would be the patron saint of people eating fruit-flavored candy. And if I'm going to have multiple things, I'd also be the patron saint of people who need to go to the bathroom a lot Mm. and people who are afraid to talk to strangers. Amen. Well, Brother Brad, although neither you or I has ever been Catholic, 
There's one man in our family who most certainly was during his younger years. He's our father, Art. Let's ask him some questions. For several centuries, it was customary for young lads in the Western world to wear dresses during their early years. When they finally started wearing trousers or breeches, it was a celebrated rite of passage. If you were in charge, would you bring back this custom? No, you know, maybe knickers and, the, you know, short pants, but not breeches. Do you remember ever seeing pictures of your dad or any of his earlier relatives wearing their nursery dresses? Yeah, I, I think some male in my family wore a confirmation dress. I'm not, not a confirmation, a baptism, baptismal baptism. dress. Yeah, yeah gone. At what age did your parents stop making you wear a dress? <laughs> well, they never really stopped me, but uh, I don't think my dad would have approved. If you were to walk around your neighborhood showing off your new trousers and asking for money in return, how do you think people would react today? They probably would uh, just think there goes another crazy old guy. Tsar Nicholas II, Frederick the Great, and FDR all wore dresses as wee lads. Jesus wore a tunic even as an adult. What's the deal with you wearing trousers? Well, I was told to wear them, so I did. Usually they were hand-me-downs. If they had handed down a dress to me, I probably would have worn that. Well, folks, now that we've heard from Father Art, it means that our time together is coming to an end for this episode. We've said just about everything we're prepared to say about skeleton suits. Bullet ant gloves, the man in the yellow hat, cloth theft, mall flanders, pantalone, God's house, and God's property. But fear not, just as soon as we can dig back into the archives and find another gem of a text exchange, there will be another episode coming your way. In the meantime, you can head over to our Instagram page at Things I Text My Brother Podcast to drop us a note about what you liked, what you didn't like, or to tell us about something we got totally wrong. You might even have enough time to go tell a friend, an enemy, and a total stranger to give us a listen as well. If you manage to do any of that, Eternity of Drew Yards will be forever grateful. But most importantly, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. So you're against anything that comes out of a toilet? Probably. Things shouldn't be coming out of the toilet. I'm going to say probably. I There may be something somewhere sometime that I would have been like, yeah, that's all right. But generally, no, I don't like things that come out of the toilet.